Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning as we worship our God together. On the back of your bulletins are the announcements. There aren't any new announcements except to mention the ladies' Bible study on Saturday. It will begin at 9 o'clock at the home of the Whites. Uh, there is a study guide, ladies, for you who are be a part of that. I think Tricia has it on their back table. So one of the two, you can get those study guides for your study on Saturday morning. Well, now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. In Daniel chapter 11, we hear these words. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. It goes a little bit along with what we had talked about in Sunday school. It is in knowing God that our passion Our strength, our perseverance, our endurance is to be found. And so we pray that this morning, and I would ask you to pray even now, that our time together would be a time in which we get to know our God even better. Will you just take a moment to ask God to aid us in that this morning? For our call to worship, we are inside your bulletin. comes from Romans chapter 11. And the call to worship this morning is the Apostle Paul's being taken up with the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. When you come to Romans chapter 11, Paul is bringing to an end his study of the doctrine of the gospel. He has set before the people the need of the gospel because of man's sin, the gospel itself found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes to us by His grace. And so as He brings to an end this exhortation concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, and before He begins to make application, I imagine that Paul, writing this letter, sitting there, And and just for a moment, he's taken up with the grace, the majesty, the wisdom of God that's found in the gospel. And he didn't know anything else to say, but oh, that's how he starts this. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's just taken up with the wonderful gospel that's found in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that is our call to worship. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. 
Or who has first given to him that, that he might pay back? Well, now let us take our hymns of grace, turning to number 48 in the hymns of grace, that familiar hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Number 48 in the hymns of grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you again this Lord's Day morning with joy and gratitude for your great loving kindness to us. We thank you that we can come before you because of our Lord Jesus, the eternal Word of God, through whom all things were made, 
became flesh and dwelt among us, that we who were by nature children of wrath because of our sin could be given the right to become children of God. And so, Father, as your children, we ask that you would be pleased to be with us this hour, and may each of us here together bring glory and honor to your name. Let there be no unconfessed sin among us, nor any other hindrances to our true spiritual worship. Grant that we would bear witness to the true light that has come into the world, our Lord Jesus. For it is in his great name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now take your Trinity hymn books and turn to 191. 191, a hymn that speaks about that which we shall read in John chapter 1, where John sees Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this hymn expresses that same thought. O thou, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb for sinners slain. 191. consecutive reading through the New Testament today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 34, John 1, verses 1 through 34, and there are three brief points I'd like to call to our attention in this passage. The first is 
regardless of the claims of the JWs and the LDS or any other cult that the Lord Jesus is a created being and Lucifer's brother, etc., Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is unambiguously proclaiming the deity of the Lord Jesus in verses 1 through 3. The words and the structure of verse 3 in particular refute any idea that he himself was created. The second is, regardless of how often we hear things like, we're all God's children, verses 12 and 13 state clearly who God's children are. Verse 12 says it's all who received the Lord Jesus. And who are those? Those who believe on his name. And how did they believe? Verse 13 says it's not your bloodline, not your family. No one decided for you. You didn't even decide for yourself. You were spiritually born of God. He did it. In chapter 3, Jesus calls it being born again. And the third is regardless of how often we hear things like there are many ways to know God, the only way we can know God is through the Lord Jesus. Jesus makes him known, verse 18. He is revealed in the Lord Jesus, which accords with Hebrews chapter 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So John chapter 1, and I'm reading from the ESV, Hear now the word of the living and true God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He, is, he who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, 
I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, this morning as we seek our God together in prayer, we especially want to remember the Perkins, Philip and Abigail, uh, read their letter this past Wednesday at prayer meeting, and we rejoice with them in God giving them uh, another child, uh, Elias, I believe is his name. And so we're thankful for that, and their plans are to return to Indonesia either late summer or early fall. We pray that God would give them guidance and wisdom and direction with regard to that possibility. Let us seek our God together in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, how how thankful we are for the truths that we have heard read to us this morning from your holy word. We thank you for the reality that in the beginning was the Word. We read there in the opening of your Word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That Word was there in the beginning. We thank you that He was with God. And we thank you that He is God. Father, we're thankful for the privilege that we have of being numbered with the children of God not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of your dear Son. And because of your grace that has drawn us unto yourself so that we might receive him. And having received him, that we might be numbered with the children of God. And yet, Father, there are many who are not the children of God. Some who sit among us, no doubt within our community, within our state, within our country, in the world. There's many who have not the knowledge of Christ. There there are many who are not a part of the family of God. And and therefore, Father, we pray that that would cause us all the more to declare the gospel to those around us. to to live the gospel before those around us. Father, we pray that upon those occasions when we have the opportunity to share Christ with others, that when we're able to tell them the good news concerning His work, His death and burial and resurrection, 
that, Father, you would prepare hearts to receive that word, that it might bear fruit, and that we might see others added to the kingdom of God. Oh, Father, we pray that we would have a greater burden to see others come to Christ, to see others numbered with the children of God. Forgive us, we pray, for oftentimes how, how lazy we become, or even at times how we're embarrassed. But we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation. So we ask that you would give us that boldness, that courage, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that, Father, that as that word goes forth, you would draw others unto yourself. We pray for those who leave home, who leave family, who who leave the traditions they are used to in order to go to other places to share that gospel. And in light of that, we pray this morning for the Perkins. We, We pray for Abigail and for Philip. That, that, Father, you would help them to build a relationship with one another that is well-pleasing in your sight. And, and then with that, that they would bring up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Thank you for the gift of this new son that you've been pleased to give them. But Father, how we pray that you would help them to maintain and keep their own hearts above everything else. And then you would be with Philip as the head of that home to be the husband and the father he ought to be and seeking to to be the head of the home that you would have him be. And Abigail delighting in her position there within the home and setting an environment that is well-pleasing in your sight. And and then, Father, we pray that you would guide them in, in days to come with regard to their future in Central Asia. And Father, if you're pleased to lead them there and guide them there, may you use them for the good and the advancement of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would draw near to us this morning. May you be with Micah as he opens your word. May, may Father, the Spirit, your Spirit, come and minister unto us as that word goes forth. Be his help. And we pray, Father, that you would draw near to us and that we would find it a delight to hear your word and rightly apply it. So help us in these things in our time together as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now let us take our Trinity hymn books once again, turning to number 15 in the Trinity hymn book. 15, come let us sing unto the Lord, and we sing about all those things that he has done. Number 15 in the Trinity hymn book. Let us stand together as we sing.
Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with the people of the Lord today. Sometimes, well, should be all the time. The Lord's Day feels like a drink of fresh water being in the midst of the desert all week. If you turn with me into your Bibles, your copies of God's Word, to Isaiah chapter 40. That's going to be our text for this morning. And I know I haven't been up here in a a few weeks, but if you remember, we've been considering together the attributes of God. And more specifically, we've been considering the incommunicable attributes of God so far in this study. Uh, The incommunicable attributes being those attributes by which God distinguishes himself from creatures. Uh, If you want an example, for instance, love would be known as a communicable attribute because it's an attribute that God has in the ultimate supreme sense, but it's ultimately an attribute that we also share in. He expects us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We share, theologians say, by way of analogy in the love of God. But there's other attributes that we don't share with God. For instance, we can know things, but this morning we're going to see that only God is all-knowing. That is the attribute that is before us this morning, God's omniscience. And we're going to see that attribute, I think, clearly from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and it's going to be, we're primarily going to be in verses 12 through 14, but Before we read God's word together, how many of you are familiar with crime shows, mysteries, law court shows, uh, television shows where a case is being brought before the court and the prosecuting attorney is trying to bring forth evidence to convict somebody of a crime? I grew up watching those kinds of shows, whether it was Law and Order or something else like that. But some, a theme that is often repeated in those shows is that this case is being brought to court, the court is convened, but everything that the prosecuting attorney brings forward seems to get smacked down by the defense. And the prosecuting attorney is struggling to make his case. But then, all of a sudden, one piece of evidence so utterly clear and forceful is introduced to the jury. And with that one piece of evidence, the entire case is turned on its head and the jury has no choice but to convict and to rule guilty against this person that's been accused of this crime. Some pieces of evidence are so forceful that they make the case in and of themselves. And that's exactly the kind of evidence that we have for Yahweh's position as the exalted, supreme creator of all things in the face of those who have exalted themselves as gods in his place in Isaiah 40 through 48. 
This is known as the trial of the false gods. In this text, Yahweh has convened his court. Yahweh has called into the courtroom both Israel and the false gods that they've set in his place, and he has taken his seat both as the judge and as the prosecuting attorney, and he is bringing forth evidence that he is the one and only true God, that he is the creator of the ends of the earth, that all things flow from him, from his creative will, and that there is none that stands beside him. That's the case that Yahweh is proving in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. But regarding that piece of evidence that is so convincing that it proves the case in and of itself, Yahweh brings his knowledge forward in this text. Isaiah 40 through 48 is replete with references to not only the fact that Yahweh knows the future, he knows all things, he knows every ounce of created reality to the utmost extent, but he's also in total control over it, so much so that he can tell them what is going to happen in the future. He can make them promises that will take place in the future, and the fulfillment of those promises proves that he is God and their idols are nothing but worthless pieces of wood or at best demons that they have bowed to. Their idols are nothing but creations in the presence of the Creator. So that is the idea that is being brought forward in this text. Let's read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 14 together. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as helpless creatures. And we are helpless. We pray that by the grace of your Son, you would condescend to us this morning. Fill us with your Spirit. And give us ears to hear your Word. Give us eyes to see your true glory. The fact that you are God and there is no other. We have set up so many idols in our hearts pray that you would knock them down this morning. And I pray that you would also comfort us in the presence of your glory with the fact that you have given your Son for us and to us and that we are Christ's and Christ is ours. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So, 
once again, Yahweh comes into the courtroom and presents his knowledge as this singular piece of evidence. But before we get into uh, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14, I want you to see what he says in Isaiah 41, 21. Isaiah 41, 21. He's speaking to the idols directly in this, in these verse, in, in this verse. And he's saying to them, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs. Once again, this is courtroom language. Set forth your case, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell them what it tell us what is to happen. So what is going to happen in the future? Can your idols tell you what's going to happen in the future? And tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Okay, so we have two different elements here that we're going to be considering. Tell us uh, what is going to happen. And then also tell us the former things, what they are, that we may know their outcome. So not only do we have God's knowledge of the future, but we also have his total knowledge of every past event. And not only that, but his providential reasons that they happened. So not only is God saying, I know everything, he's saying, I have a reason for everything that has happened in history. Everything that has happened with the children of Israel, Yahweh is saying, can your idols tell you the reasons those things happened? He's saying that I have a reason that those things happened. So this is not just knowledge, this is his sovereignty. This is his providential care by which not only does he know everything that happens in time, but also he is in total control of everything that happens in time and has an ultimate purpose for it that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Yahweh is mocking the false gods here. He's saying, declare to us the things that are to come, that we may know that you are gods. He's pressing in on us. This reality that he alone is the creator of all things and every God that we set up in his presence is nothing but a worthless idol who does not see, who does not know, and who does not understand. That's the case that he is making. It's not just here that he makes this case in these eight chapters, though. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. He's making the case that he is infinitely more glorious than any idol we can set up in his place. Isaiah 40:25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, says the Exalted One, says the Transcendent One, the One who is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Whom will you compare him to? Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5. To whom then will you liken me and make me equal? To whom will you compare me that we may be alike? 
And then back to chapter 40 and verses 10 and 11. Or excuse me, verses, chapter 48, verses 10 and 11. My handwriting's bad. Chapter 48, verses 10 and 11. This is the end of this section of scripture and he makes this appeal one final time. Behold, I have refined you. In other words, I have a purpose for what I am bringing on Israel and it's to refine them, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, so there's a reason my judgment is coming. For my own sake, for my own sake that I, I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So you see this, this repetition over and over and over again in these four chapters. Yahweh is proving that he's the creator of all things and he's demanding the position of utmost glory in our hearts. And once again, the argument that closes the case that he is God alone is his knowledge, as we saw in chapter 41 verses 21 and 22. So really, I want us to see three things to summarize this attribute of omniscience this morning. I want us to see the extent of Yahweh's knowledge. I want us to see the source of Yahweh's knowledge. And I want us to see the effect of Yahweh's knowledge or the application of it. So first... The extent of Yahweh's knowledge. Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 12. This is our first verse that we're going to be considering this morning in this text. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? So what is Isaiah saying here through this beautiful picturesque language about Yahweh. He's talking about Yahweh measuring the waters in the hollow of his hands and saying that no, implying rather, that no idol has ever done that. He's saying that Yahweh has marked off the heavens with a span and that no idol could ever have done that. That he's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and no idol has ever done this. He's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. And once again, no idol can do this. They don't have this kind of knowledge. But what is his knowledge extending to in these verses? Well, it's talking about his knowledge of the physical structures of the universe, the physical makeup of the cosmos. If you want to put it in different terms, he's saying, do you know how wide the heavens are? Because I know. And now, I mean, post-Hubble telescope, that is an even more amazing statement, isn't it? We know that there are millions and millions and millions of galaxies that proclaim the glory of the triune God. God is saying, I know the expanse of them, and the idols don't. God is saying, I know how much Mount Everest weighs, and the idols do not. I've weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. I've enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. He knows how many grains of dust make up each mountain in our world. Obviously, 
This is language that's meant to bring us to the conclusion that there is nothing in all of created reality that is outside of his knowledge. It's not just extending to the physical makeup of the universe. What Isaiah is intending to communicate through the vastness of his knowledge is that there is nothing in the created universe that he does not know. There is nothing that he is ignorant of. And all the rest of the scriptures proclaim the same message, by the way. Turn with me to Psalm 136, verses 4 through 5. Psalm 136, verses 4 and 5. Or we'll start in verse 3, actually, so we can get the complete thought here. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who is the only one who understands enough to make the heavens? Yahweh, whose steadfast love endures forever. Jeremiah 51.15 makes, makes a similar point here. Jeremiah 51.15 It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. So in other words, Jeremiah is almost saying, what good would God's power be without the understanding or the knowledge to make all of these things? If he had the power to do it, but not the knowledge to do it, that would be no good. Jeremiah is lifting God up as the one who is infinite in both power and wisdom. Other verses just for cross-reference are Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, Proverbs 15, verses 3 and verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, if you want to jot those down and look at them later. These verses are all declaring to us God's comprehensive knowledge of all created reality. But it's not just the world as it exists now that the Bible declares to us that God knows comprehensively. This knowledge also includes all past and all future events. Do you remember uh, when we talked about God's omnipresence? how he is present at every point in time simultaneously, how by his simple and infinite essence all events on the timeline of human history stand as an ever-present reality to him. Well, because that's true, it makes sense that he simultaneously, by one simple act of his nature, knows all things that happen in human history. So all past and all future events are ever present to him, not only in his presence, but in his knowledge, his meticulous and infinite knowledge. Once again, Isaiah 41.22, Declare to me us the former things, 
Tell us their outcome. Tell us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. And Yahweh is telling us all of this in order to crush our pride. Because it's pride in the first place that leads us to set up gods that rival him. We create idols in our own image, mirroring our own desires, and then we give them the place of supremacy in our hearts. God is intending to level all of those in this text. Specifically, by telling us about His infinite knowledge. And the fact that, I think we take for granted sometimes, the fact that he knows all things future and all things past and that his knowledge extends and his knowledge extends to everything uh, that happens within time because there are people who call themselves evangelicals who don't even believe this did you know that there are people who call themselves evangelicals who don't believe that god knows the future and they say that god doesn't know the future in the interest of upholding our libertarian free will And the argument goes like this. Essentially, they believe that the future is open. This is called open theism. They believe that the future is open even to God. Meaning God cannot know with certainty what free creatures will do because if he knows it, then he can't do do otherwise. God cannot, in other words, according to this position, God cannot know with certainty what is going to happen in the future because if he knows it, then that means that you are absolutely going to do it and that strips you of your freedom. That's what they say. Does anyone else have the feeling that Isaiah would have something to say about that? (laughs) Like, I don't know how you read this eight chapters of Scripture or anything in the Bible for that matter and come away with that position. This section of Isaiah obliterates that heresy. This whole section, Yahweh is proving in the midst of all the idols that He is the only true God, and He does this by telling them what is going to happen in the future. He's saying, look how I will fulfill my promises, and I will do it with all sorts of the actions of free creatures. That's what Yahweh is saying. He's saying, watch how I work out my knowledge and my plan, even in the midst of the creatures, to show that I am God and they are not. He is going to redeem in this text. That's what this text starts off with. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity is pardoned. This is God promising salvation to His people. He's going to send Babylon against them in overwhelming judgment, and then He's going to bring them out of exile in a new exodus. And in all of that, because He's telling them what He's going to do ahead of time, He's proving that He is the only true God. But just to show you, to demonstrate to you, that His knowledge extends and His... Sovereign control extends to the actions of supposedly free creatures. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. Because he, not only does he say that I am going to save, not only does he say that I am going to pardon your iniquity, 
Not only does he say that I am going to bring you back into your land, he says exactly how he is going to do it. And this is just a really, really amazing piece of prophecy here in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Want to know what's most amazing about this, uh, this chapter and this section of prophecy? This is delivered hundreds of years before Cyrus is even born. And he names him. He names Cyrus as the instrument, his anointed for the delivering of the people of Israel. Cyrus was the one, was the king who let out the decree that Israel should be allowed to go back into her land and to rebuild the temple. But this is long before Cyrus is even born. So, in other words, tell me again how God doesn't have control and knowledge over the future actions of free creatures. Tell me how God doesn't know the future. He says concerning Cyrus, I have grasped his hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the belt of kings, and he opens doors before him that the gates may not be closed. Yahweh is in total control of all of these events in Cyrus's life, and Every supposedly free will decision that Cyrus makes is subject to the decree and the power of Yahweh. God's knowledge obviously extends to everything that will happen in the future. And it's not like he knows in a sense of probability. He doesn't know, he doesn't think, well, this will probably happen because. You know, I'm pretty smart and I've been around for a while and I, you know, I know how things go. So this, this will probably happen in the future. No, Yahweh is speaking with absolute certainty because this is how he has decreed to deliver his people. Yahweh is proved to be the only true God because in one simple eternal act, he comprehends the totality of all of created reality. So that's the breadth of his knowledge. It extends to every aspect of created existence. The physical structures of the universe, every event, every decision made by creatures, every happening in the timeline, God knows, he knows it certainly, and he knows it exhaustively. That's the breadth of his knowledge and the extent of it. But, even after you've said that, you still haven't done enough to say what God knows or how he knows it. Because even after you've said that, all you've covered is what he knows. You haven't covered how he knows it. And that is another mark that distinguishes God 
from, his, from us, his creatures. It's not only what he knows and the breadth of his knowledge, but it's also how he knows what he knows that shows us that he is God. And Isaiah says that in, in uh, chapter 40, verses 12, through 12 and 14 as well. Or, excuse me, 13 and 14 as well. But to illustrate the tension here, There are believers out there who say, okay, no, I I buy that God knows the future. God knows what free creatures will do. But then they turn that on its head and say, but he only knows because he looks ahead in time and sees what these creatures will do. In other words, he doesn't have any control over what they do. He doesn't have any say or creative power over what they do. He just looks ahead in time and sees what they do. This is most commonly uh, brought up when you're talking about divine election. When you bring up a passage to maybe an evangelical Christian who isn't a Calvinist, and they'll say, well, yeah, God chooses us in Christ, but he chooses us because he really just looks forward in time, and he learns or sees what we're going to do. He sees that we will choose Jesus, and then he chooses us in return. Is that how God gets his knowledge? Does God extract his knowledge from things outside of himself, making himself dependent upon creatures for what he knows? Because that's really a difference. That's really one of the huge differences between the way that creatures glean knowledge and the way that God has knowledge from himself. And Isaiah has something to say about how God gets his knowledge. So point number two, the source of God's knowledge in verses 13 and 14. God's knowledge is from himself alone. He doesn't retrieve it from any creature. After speaking of the extent of God's knowledge, Isaiah labors to show that God's knowledge is not received from any creature. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? In other words, who has given something, some uh, amount of information to the spirit of Yahweh so he might act differently than he would have otherwise? That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying the spirit of Yahweh acts according to the knowledge from God himself and from God himself alone. Nobody can add to or direct his actions. And then, what man shows him his counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult? Who made him understand? In other words, is God's source of understanding anything outside of himself? Does God know the future because he looks on the future and retrieves that knowledge from creatures that are outside of himself? And Isaiah's answer is no. That is a distinguishing mark of God's omniscience. God's knowledge does not have any source outside of himself, just like we talked about with God's aseity, God's independence. Every one of God's attributes, including God's knowledge, is possessed eternally and from himself alone in a way that he is independent of anything outside of himself to be who he is or to have what he has. 
None of his attributes, including his knowledge, are dependent for their operation on creatures like us. So just to illustrate this point, think about the totality of what you know. Is there anything that you know in your knowledge that you haven't received? All of our knowledge as creatures is received knowledge. I have a very small child at home. And sometimes my wife has to tell me, look, you don't understand. She doesn't know anything. Every aspect of her knowledge has to be gleaned from outside of her. So she watches her parents. So hopefully one day she'll learn to listen to me when I say no about sticking her fingers in the outlets. Every single bit of her knowledge about the world and how she should act in it is gleaned from outside of herself and she comes into the world with none of it. And that is the essence of creaturely knowledge. It's gained by observation, by instruction, by analysis, and by digestion. We know from outside of ourselves. I know what these pews look like because these pews have an existence outside of me and I can look on them and then I have an idea of them. That is creaturely knowledge. Or to give you a different example, I know, I know what my Bible looks like sitting right there because I put it right there and now I can glean that from the outside of myself. And if I walked out the, out the doors today, I still know of this situation, this reality, because it exists objectively outside of me. But that's not how God knows about my Bible sitting on this pulpit. That's not how God knows anything that God knows, including the future actions of creatures. All of God's knowledge is not gleaned from anything outside of himself, but is from himself alone. God doesn't gain knowledge by observing, analyzing, and contemplating things outside of himself. If he did, he would be finite. If God gained anything from outside of himself, he would not be the infinite one and he wouldn't be God. God doesn't know things because they exist. They exist because from eternity he decrees and knows them. I like the way the uh, Dutch theologian put this reality, which is sort of what I was trying to communicate with those illustrations, but he says it more poignantly than I can. In man, things themselves are the pattern and our knowledge of them is the image. So the pattern exists outside of us and our knowledge is an image of those things. But in God, the idea is the pattern and the things themselves are the expressed image. So all of creation and everything that happens in human history, all of created reality flows from the divine mind and his creative will and decree. That's what this is saying. He doesn't gain anything 
by what is outside of himself. He gives existence to everything outside of himself. That is how supreme God is. He is on a totally different plane than any of us are as creatures, specifically in the realm of his knowledge. That's what Isaiah means when he says, what man has shown him his counsel. Has God gleaned counsel from anything outside of himself? Did God choose you for salvation in Christ because he saw that you were going to choose Jesus? The person who claims that raises their hand and says, I have shown him his counsel. That's what the person who says that really does. It's to, it's it's to really to try to take God off of his throne and to make ourselves little gods. All the nations in the world, verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations in the world are not enough to add anything to him. And that includes in the realm of his knowledge. So here's the point. God's knowledge of everything in his decree is grounded in his infinite knowledge of his own being. And that is the most astounding thing about God's omniscience. Because if God only knew what was in the created universe, if God only knew what was going to happen in time, and all of created reality. Do you realize that his knowledge would still be finite? Because there's a finite amount of stuff in created reality. There's a finite amount of events on the timeline. There's a finite amount of molecules that make up the universe. There's a finite amount of space in our universe. Created reality is not infinite. So God's knowledge must extend past even created reality in and of itself, in order for his knowledge to be infinite. And this is the most beautiful thing about divine omniscience. Because God's knowledge is infinite, we know that his infinite knowledge really starts with knowledge of his own being. He has infinite knowledge and infinite understanding of his infinitely glorious essence and his decree for everything that would happen in time. This is especially startling in the light of texts like Exodus chapter 33 where we started the divine attributes. We talked about God's incomprehensibility to creatures where Moses says, show me your face. Please show me your glory. Let me comprehend the totality of your divine essence. He's longing for this sight of the complete picture of God's beauty. But no creature can drink that in. You know the only one who can drink that in is the one who eternally existed with him before time began. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally knowing and eternally delighting in one another. Infinite knowledge shared between the three of them in the divine essence. And that's one of the reasons it was so beautiful, the fact that this chapter, John chapter 1, was what we read this morning in worship. Because this speaks of the the pre-temporal Son of God, the eternal Word that shares everything with the Father before time is created. 
And that includes their own infinite knowledge by which they plumb the depths of the divine essence. So God's knowledge can only be infinite because he knows his own infinite being and he knows it eternally. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is infinite. Isaiah 40, verse 28, His understanding is unsearchable or inscrutable. It can't be searched out. Everything in creation, by definition, can be searched, even the farthest galaxy. And even though creation is vast, it is finite. But God is seen as infinite in knowledge because his knowledge, first and foremost, is knowledge of himself. And that knowledge of himself is what flows out into his knowledge of his eternal will and his decree for creation and redemption. And lastly, the third point, the effect of his knowledge. Or in other words, the application. How does this affect me? Well, first and foremost, the the first application for any of these attributes is to behold your God. And that is what Isaiah says in chapter 40. That's the first thing that they're supposed to do. Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, or verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's the first application when we look at any of God's acts or when we look at any of God's being, any aspect or attribute of God's being. The first application is to stand back, stand in awe, and understand that he is God and we are not. But another point of application is the fact, comes from the fact that this is a salvific context in Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. This is a text promising salvation. Verse 3, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. The fact that Israel's God is the God who sees, knows, and works all things in history according to the counsel of his will is good news for those who are his. I think we see this from verse 27 in Isaiah 40 because there's this question that demands an answer. And it's a question that comes about in light of the fact that they're about to be sent into exile. They're about to be sent into judgment. They're about to be carried off by the king of Babylon to a land that is not their own and they're going to stay there for a long time before they're allowed by Cyrus to go back into their own land. So it would be very easy for them to say, does our God see? Does our God know? If, he's, if, if he sees and if he knows, then all of this stuff wouldn't be happening. It would be very easy for them to begin to question the knowledge and the power of their God to deliver. But Isaiah crushes that in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord 
and my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, the horrible things that happen in the lives of God's people might lead them to question his knowledge of what is going on in their lives and his covenant faithfulness to fulfill his promises to them. But what God is saying to Israel is that in the midst of judgment, Israel, even though they are tempted to think that Yahweh didn't know their plight and was powerless to deliver them, he is assuring them, I know, and this is part of my purpose ultimately, to redeem you. And even though in the new covenant we're not under God's judgment, his judicial wrath, we see similar assurances in the New Testament. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The two other texts of application as we're drawing to a close are Romans chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 23, and then in verse 28 as well. Paul implies the same reality about God's covenant faithfulness due to his knowledge and decree and his power to carry out what he knows and decrees from all eternity for the good of his people. Romans 8, starting in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So why do God's people groan? Because we're wrestling with sins before that time comes. Because we're wrestling with the frailties of the body before that time of ultimate consummation and the delivery of God's promises to us comes. So why is Paul encouraging the the Romans with this message. Verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So even though you groan in your struggle against your own sins, even though you groan in the frailties of the body now before the resurrection, even though these Horrible realities take up a significant portion of your life in the body now. Paul says that God sees, God knows, and God is working even within this to bring about this working together for good for for all those who are uh, called according to his purpose, all those who love God. So God is able to deliver on his promises and turn every sorrow now for joy because he knows and because he's in control. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. So there's trials, there's struggles in the body that might lead us to doubt that God sees and knows our plight. 
So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. But as we look to the things that are as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So God knows your light momentary affliction now, and he has an eternal purpose for it, because his knowledge and purpose is from himself and from himself alone. And because of that, he is working, even in your trials now, to produce for you an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that you can comprehend that eternally outweighs whatever suffering his people are going through now. God's infinite knowledge and his unrestrained sovereignty over everything that happens to us should be an encouragement for us to trust even more in Christ and to look even more to the day when all of his promises to us are going to be fulfilled because he is the one who can fulfill them because he is the God of knowledge. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is nothing outside of your knowledge, that your knowledge is independent, your knowledge is simple, your knowledge is unrestrained. It is a knowledge without end. We thank you that you are control, in control over every aspect of our lives, working within us to conform us into the image of your Son for our eternal well-being and the eternal glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand with me for one final hymn this morning. It's going to be Hymns of Grace, number 17, and it's Father, O Father, You Are Sovereign. Hymns of Grace, number 17, O Father, You Are Sovereign, and it's sung to the tune of the church's one foundation. Will you stand with me worship the Lord together?
there's anyone new here, well, you'll stick around with us for lunch and uh, for our uh, second service as we continue to worship the Lord together at 145.